Amen. In uh, the, the uh, Greek text of the passage we're going to read this morning, the word amen, amen, shows up. It's an Aramaic word. It means, uh, if you don't know, sometimes uh, in the text it'll say uh, amen, amen. We translate that truly, truly, most often in English translations. Uh, at the beginning of a sentence, it may mean uh, this is true. At the end, it may mean uh, this, is, this is how things are or so be it or this is the truth. So when we sing or when we say amen, that's what we're saying. It's, a, it's actually a word that's not transliterated, but uh, we, it shows up as truly or, or true in the scriptures in English. Let's pray. Amen, God, you are true. Uh, your word is true. It is truth. Uh, and it is good for us. It is uh, water for our souls and nourishment for our spirits. So we ask that as we read and study, uh, that you would help us to pay attention uh, to your word, to your will, to your way, to your heart, to your truth. Uh, give us eyes that are good to see, ears that are able to hear, hearts that are fertile soil to receive your word. As always, I pray and ask God that uh, as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words deviate in any way from your word, may they be not even heard. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. Amen. Who is the greatest? Muhammad Ali may be best known for declaring somewhat arrogantly, brashly, confidently, I am the greatest. And it, it was his wife who was actually credited with coining the phrase, the greatest of all times, which more recently has been uh, spoken of or seen as the goat, the greatest of all times. And first in reference to her husband, Muhammad Ali, and now we use that word or that phrase or that acronym a little bit more loosely. Since that time in lots of different fields, but particularly in the realm of sports, Different people or different athletes have been named the greatest of all time or the GOAT in their sport, with some examples being in skiing, Lindsey Vaughn, in track and field, Usain Bolt, in gymnastics, Simone Biles, in baseball, Babe Ruth, in football, Tom Brady, in swimming, Michael Phelps, in tennis, Serena Williams, in soccer, Pele. In hockey, the great one, Wayne Gretzky. And then finally in basketball, his heirness, Michael Jordan. Each of them arguably the greatest of all time, at least in their field or in their respective sports. And isn't that in some way what all of us strive for? It is what most athletes strive for and in many ways often subtle, often unconscious often unarticulated what much of what all of us in life strive for. In varying ways and to varying degrees, we want to be great. We want to be admired. We want to be respected. We want to be honored and esteemed. And more than that, we want to be on top in some way or capacity, at the top. It is human nature. It may be fallen human nature, but it is human nature. 
And so we shouldn't be surprised that such was on the mind or came to the mind of Jesus' disciples. They were humans just like us. And this was their question to Jesus at the beginning of chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel. Listen closely. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And maybe you've read this passage in the past to mean that the disciples were asking, Who will be the greatest in the world that's to come one day, either when Jesus leads an overthrow of the Romans and Israel is restored to its once and once again greatness and glory, or when we all die and the good people or the Christian people go to a place that we think of and call heaven up in the sky, a forever reality that we call eternal life. And so at this point, I want to pause as we think about their question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And once again, put up on the screen a few of the things we've talked about over the last few weeks and a few, a few of the things that we've seen and learned from the scriptures and particularly through Matthew's gospel about what he, Matthew, calls the kingdom of heaven. First, when Matthew records Jesus as saying kingdom of heaven, Matthew means what in other gospels and in the Apostle Paul's writings we see as the kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven equals kingdom of God. When Jesus says, second, kingdom of heaven does not equal heaven, and so also, kingdom of God does not equal heaven. When Jesus says kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, he's not talking about what we otherwise think of or know as heaven. Jesus is talking about something altogether different. Continuing, we know from the scriptures that the kingdom of God, so also the kingdom of heaven, is not Israel, the United States, the church, a physical or geographic location up there or a strictly future reality. It is none of these things. Rather, as we've learned according to the Scriptures, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is the authority of God to reign, the rule of God in people's lives, the reality in which what God wills is done or comes into fruition or comes into reality, the people over whom God rules or is ruling, the, that the kingdom of God is dynamic, we have seen, that it is changing, that it is uh, moving, that it is in motion, that it is active, and finally that the kingdom of God is inherently and always about the king. These are what the kingdom of God is, or the kingdom of heaven is. And now notice again the disciples' question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus' answer to their question is going to tell us more about what the kingdom of God is like, about what and how the kingdom of God is, about its nature, about its characteristics, about what, where, and who it intersects with. But first, I want to note that Matthew records their question as present tense, is, rather than who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, because the kingdom of heaven is present tense. The kingdom was right then, as they were asking. The kingdom of heaven is right now for us. Are you with me on this so far? Are you really with me on this? All right. 
back to verse 1. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you and I know, both know from other passages in the Gospels and from our knowledge of ourselves and the people around us, human nature, that Jesus' disciples were hoping that Jesus might just name one of them or at least hint that one of them might be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Or maybe, maybe if we're generous in our estimation of them, give them a hint at how they could ascend to being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That was behind their question. We know that because that's the way they function. That's the way we function. That's the way human nature is. He, verse 2, Jesus called a little child to them, ready to answer their question. He called a little child to them and placed the child among them. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so all of a sudden Jesus gets really serious toward and about and for those who are interested in the kingdom of heaven. Unless you change... And some of the more uh, literal English versions of this passage translate this Greek word here that we see as change, strafete, as unless you are converted. John takes it and spins it as unless you are born again in his gospel. Here, unless you are converted or unless you turn or unless you make a 180-degree turn as in repentance. Unless you change and become like little children, and this idea is as hard as it was for Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John's gospel to hear Jesus say, unless you're born again, how can a person be born again? How can a person change and become like a child? You will never enter or taste or experience or know or live in the kingdom of heaven. And this is not what anyone expects Jesus to say. And Jesus was not encouraging childish behavior. We know people who are Christians who, are follow, who follow Jesus who behave just like children. But Jesus was not saying behave like children. He was thinking of something completely different, which he goes on to describe, verse 4. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He's got a kid maybe sitting on his knee or he's holding him or he's got his hand on him or right there with him. Whoever takes the position the lowly position of this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And now we know what Jesus meant by becoming like little children. It's about taking the lowly position of a child, and that apparently is the root to greatness. That is how someone becomes great, or even the greatest of all times, the goat in the kingdom of God, by taking a lowly position. Jesus' disciples question was not an outlier question in any way. They asked what many people of their time wondered and what rabbis discussed. And the Judaism of the time usually suggested that it was the righteous or those who were deeply immersed in studying the Scriptures and who were skillful in teaching the Scriptures and the Mishnah or those who were rich in good works or maybe even martyrs, these were the people who were widely understood at the time who would be great in the future age or in the kingdom that was coming. 
in what they were looking for in the overthrow of the Roman Empire in a new reality in which God the King reigns. And Jesus completely flips their ideas upside down. If you don't have a flipped upside down idea of the kingdom, soak in it for a minute because it's exactly counter to our intuition and our human nature. The kingdom of God is not only not what a person would expect, but it's exactly the opposite of what one would expect, exactly the opposite of our natural tendencies and desires, exactly the opposite of the world in which we live and the, world, the way in which this world functions and thinks. Greatness. In other words, spiritual or ecclesiastical rank. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is achieved or attained through downward mobility. In our world, we talk about upward mobility. Jesus is talking about downward mobility. It is as the apostle described Jesus to the Philippians, taking the very nature of a servant, which to our ears sounds rather virtuous but to the ears of a first century person sounded shameful and degrading and worthless and unattractive and ignoble rather than noble. Down is the new way up, according to Jesus. When Jesus, seeking to answer his students' questions, calls himself a little child, uses that child as an example or an illustration, when he does that, he was saying that greatness in the kingdom of God was or happens when or is like. One, children whose role in that culture was to listen and obey, so being attentive, subservient, submissive even. And two, like children who are wide-eyed and receptive to new ideas and inherent learners, they are teachable. Another word for which is humble, teachable, and humble. Some of us, as we grow, and the more we grow and the older we get, become less and less teachable, and so also less humble. And so Jesus calls his followers to humility, which to us is a virtue, but in the first century and to pagan moralists was in every way a vice and not a virtue. Not something to be pursued, but something to be run from. And third, like children who are eager to receive things, we are to become receptive to being given things, to becoming people who love to be given things, partly because in, di in, in contrast to children who cannot produce or acquire things on their own or their own resources but also don't have what we have, a developed and misplaced pride in which we are unwilling at times to receive, unwilling to acknowledge our needs and our dependencies, our need for others to support, to give, to bless, to help us in life. If you're interested in the kingdom of God and entering the kingdom of God, Jesus says, become like a child. Abandon the quest for status in the world's terms. Turn around. Pursue downward mobility. Jesus declares that the repositioning of oneself to the place of a child or into a place of inherently lower status is actually the way 
to authentic and profound living now and in a life of God's kingdom forever. Do you believe that? We say that we believe in Jesus. We stand up. We recite the Apostles' Creed. We say that we believe. Do we trust that what he says is true and good and beneficial for us and for the world? And there's more. Jesus then shifts gears a little bit between verses 4 and 5. And verse 5 goes like this. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Jesus has described greatness in the kingdom and how to become great, change and become like a child. And now Jesus goes a step further and gives an example of what those in the kingdom do. Whoever welcomes one child in my name such one such child in my name welcomes me. In the words of the great biblical scholar who is often looked down upon for some of his views, Rudolf Bultmann, quoted on the cover of your bulletin this morning, the reception and refreshment of a little child was reckoned by Jesus as equivalent to the greatest service that could be rendered. This is the way to greatness in the kingdom. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And this was no small thing when we remember that children in the culture of the time not only had no voice and no status, but were also considered to be property in the Roman world. Possessions who parents and particularly a father could dispose of or even sell if the household's finances necessitated such, or even just on a whim or in anger, could give away, could dismiss, could sell. We take for granted in our culture that children have value, but they did not have much value in the first century Roman world. We take for granted that children are to be loved, but that was not taken for granted when Jesus spoke these words. He began a revolution in the Roman Empire that lasts, we hope, until today, of thinking differently about everything, but thinking differently in particular about children. In a book called The Rise of Christianity, the secular sociologist and scholar Rodney Starks talks about how in the Roman Empire and in the first century and in the context in, into which Jesus came and into which he spoke, the appreciation for children was non-existent. Philo, Aristotle, Socrates recommended infanticide and abortion even as state policy. The Roman government experienced such decline in Rome and across their empire during the first century, actual retraction or decline in numbers and population, not just because men were being killed in war, but because people, 
the practice was called exposure, and when a child was born, they would just leave it outside to die. An unheard of practice today, but common in that time in the Roman Empire. Abortion common because children were not appreciated by fathers and often couldn't be supported by mothers. Broadly, the whole idea about children in the first century was completely different. And Jesus, understanding the inherent value of every human being made in God's image, turns everything around and associates it with the kingdom of heaven. We've come a long way, but maybe we still have a long way to go. You know that one in five children in the United States today lives below the poverty level. In a nation that is flush with cash, flush with cash, in which the wealthy three, the three wealthiest individuals in the United States have more resources than the lower 50% of people. There are children in every state and county in the United States who don't have enough. What does that say about our culture? What does that say about the kingdom that's coming? What does it say about the pervasiveness of followers of Jesus and kingdom seekers in our midst. One of the, the heroes from the Super Bowl said that he would pay for every dog's adoption in a certain uh, dog pound kennel SPCA facility in Atlanta. And the big news was that every dog was adopted because he paid for it last week. There are children in foster care homes all across our country who nobody wants. Are you with me? Jesus goes on and says a few more things beyond these five verses. He says in verse 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, and he really is talking, he uses a Greek term that uh, means little children and even babies. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. He says in verse 10 of chapter 18, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Fast forward to chapter 19, the next chapter. At verse 13, Jesus says, Then people brought little children to Jesus, thinking, oh, there's something different here. They brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. And you think, did the, did the disciples not get it? Could Jesus have not been more clear? And yet a chapter later, the disciples are rebuking Jesus for 
doing and demonstrating exactly what he told them to do. Are you really interested in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus declares these words that are familiar to us, but maybe not in context. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Let them come to me. Do not hinder them because the disciples in the whole world and the culture had been hindering them from coming to the king and to the kingdom. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to these, to them, to people like them, to people such as them. And scholars think that Jesus not only has in mind children and the vulnerable, the smallest and the weakest, but also grown-ups, the elderly, the disposed, the pushed to the edges, the fringes of society, those who are given no esteem, who have no power. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Do not hinder them. And in the first century again, we see historically, secularly, this revolution among Jesus' people who finally get it and who begin to care for the poor and who begin to care for the suffering and who begin to care for the weak in ways that the pagan culture and the great Roman Empire never did, would, or could because they didn't know the real king. But since that time, the kingdom has been advancing. And it is advancing. And Jesus calls us to be advancers of the kingdom, advocates for the kingdom. I'm really grateful that one of our ten values is children. Does it make children any more special than the rest of us? But it goes in the flow of Jesus and his empire that they be valued and cared for and nurtured and loved. Our culture pays the smallest wages to people who take care of children. Our culture pays the smallest wages to those who take care of those who are homebound, bedbound, who are in nursing facilities, skilled nursing facilities, and dark corners. Followers of Jesus, people of the kingdom, must continue to turn the world upside down. This week on Wednesday, I saw Peggy Morris hanging out in our playground on, as she always does on Wednesdays, who was the kids who come with community Bible study. And I said to myself, and reflecting on these verses, she among all of us is doing the kingdom this week. It just looks like babysitting, but it is kingdom work and important. There are so many good things that go on in our nursery and so many good things that go on in our toddler room. If you want to be great, if you want to be great, volunteer in children's ministry. 
you want to be great, volunteer in youth ministry. Do not hinder the children, but affirm them, love them, become like them. Because the kingdom of heaven, that kingdom that we all seek, belongs to them. Let's pray. Oh, in fact, the kids are back. Hey, they're with their parents. Uh, parents, put your hands on your kids. If you're around uh, a parent with kids, put your hand on their kid if they'll let you, or put your hand on them, their head, their shoulders, in a safe way. You can stand up. You can move around. We're just family here. And as Jesus did, place your hands and play, pray a blessing to the Father. Let's do that together. God, for the children in our midst, we give you profound gratitude. Make us in many ways like them. Learners, receivers, humble, dependent, looking upward, wide-eyed, receptive, joyful, free, attentive to you. Help us to learn from the children, value the children, and not only the children, but those who also are dependent on others. Make us like them, bless them, enrich them, infuse them with your love, raise them up, bring us down, that we might see you and know you and enter and live abundantly in your kingdom, great King. Amen, amen, amen.